0: always start out by warning my clients that their social media is like attorney's favorite thing to use exhibits in court. So they should assume that anything they put online will end up before the judge's eyes.
1: You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, attorney Holly Draper.
0: Today we are excited to
1: welcome Kayla Arvalo to the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast. Kayla is an attorney with Cruz Law Group PC in Dallas, Texas. She began working in family law at the age of 19 as a paralegal and continued to work full time as she put herself through college and law school. She has a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies from UT Arlington and a JD from Texas A&M School of Law. Because of her years of experience as a family law, legal assistant, paralegal, and law clerk prior to becoming a lawyer, Kayla's knowledge and experience far exceed her number of years as a lawyer. Kayla has always been drawn to family law because of her love for children. She helps clients through the difficult decisions that can have a lasting impact on children, and she strives to help children overcome the negative impact of divorce and child custody cases. Kayla is also a mom to two beautiful girls with another baby on the way and works to juggle a legal career with motherhood. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks. I'm super excited to be here.
1: So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background?
0: Well, I feel like you did a pretty thorough job there, but yeah. <laughs> I actually started in the legal field at 19, and before that, I was raised in Ennis, Texas. I went to high school in Ennis. I'm super involved in my community there, and then I went to junior college at Navarro. The same Navarro as, like, Cheer on Netflix. I know you guys binge Netflix, too. <laughs> and, like, and I cheer- have a
1: cheer daughter, so, you know, I can't
0: avoid that. I did not cheer there, but I went to school there, and I got my paralegal and... Um, associate's degree from there. And Demara Watkins actually would take time out as outside of class to help me learn how to do prodoc how to draft, because, you know, I just felt after a semester of school, I needed to work in a law firm in Dallas. That's, that's where I was supposed to be. But I didn't know anything. I only had a semester of school. So she really took the time to kind of teach me how to finesse my way into learning what I'm doing, (laughs) where to look for the answers and how to draft and things like that. And I was able to get a job at 19 years old uh, working in family law. It was a really good experience. I had 10 years at that firm and I learned a lot during my time there. And I think it really helped me through my undergrad and law school. And now as a lawyer as well. So I had a lot of exposure early on, which I think is just invaluable.
1: Yeah, that's when we first met was you were working as a paralegal down in Dallas and got to know you through that process, even you mediated for me some back back then in your paralegal days. So uh, I think it's awesome that you work, put your way through law school, and here we are today.
0: Yeah, you're actually one of the first lawyers I interacted with when I started working, and that was way before you were board certified and arguing before the Texas Supreme Court. <laughs> so I like to say I knew you way back when. <laughs>
1: Yes, we both come a long way since those days, huh?
0: (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So how would you describe your current practice? Busy, thankfully. (laughs) (laughs) We practice exclusively family law. I am with Monica Cruz and Cruz Law Group, and that's all we do all day every day is family law cases. The majority of our cases are in North Texas, and we range from divorce, child support, custody, to adoptions and terminations, I also do some um, CPS work as an unlitum, as well as taking private CPS cases. So it's busy and going well. So what we're here to talk about today is going to be one of our more
1: fun topics, I think. Uh, social media. So we have two different routes we're going to go during our discussion. We've got kind of social media in terms of what our clients are doing and using it in court, and then we have the other side about our own social media and how to use that to build up our practice and all of those things. So let's start on the client side really and dealing with social media use by the parties. So do you have any kind of standard protocol for what you tell your clients in family law cases about their social media use?
0: I always start out by warning my clients that their social media is like attorney's favorite thing to use exhibits in court. So they should assume that anything they put online will end up before the judge's eyes. I typically scope out my client's social media before they hire me so I can see like what kind of content they're posting and you kind of get a good feel for how your client's going to be because that's how they are when they're not under the eyes of the court. (laughs) And so I always start off with that warning. And then as much as they think they have a fundamental right to freedom of speech, which they do. Just because you have the right to do something does not mean that you should do it, such as bashing judges or the court system online or talking negatively about your co-parent online. So as tempting as that is, don't do it. Just don't do it. It's going to end up as an exhibit in court, and it's not going to sit well, very likely, with the court either. And so you just always want to keep that in mind. And I also advise them that just because they think it's a quick live or a Snapchat that they think is going to delete, the internet is forever. People screenshot, screen record, record with other devices. So they should just assume everything they're doing online will end up in court,
1: right? And even with you know Snapchat or with accounts that are private, because people think, oh, you know, I'm not sharing this to the public. It's only to my friends. Those things have a way of surfacing one way or another. The other side gets their hands on it. They have spies. They know they have someone who sees the Snapchat or whatever the case may be. And I know as lawyers, we love it when the other side does that, but we certainly don't want our client to be the one doing that.
0: I'm telling you, litigants are the CEO of going through your private social media, whether it's having a fake account or having their friends do it or whatever means necessary. So yeah, something to definitely be cautious about.
1: So what are some things that you see or that lawyers can do with social media that their clients bring to them?
0: So obviously you can use those type of posts, especially if they're negative or they show these like alienating qualities of the other parent to court. And I think another thing that kind of gets underestimated is that if a parent is posting the social media, do the kids have access to it? So are the kids reading and seeing what you're putting negatively about the other co-parent? Because the court's not gonna like that. You wouldn't like that if your co-parent was doing it to you. And so that's a good connection that I don't see a lot of people bring to the court's attention, but especially with things that are public profiles and you have preteens or teenagers, the chances are the courts are, the children are seeing those negative comments. And so I like to bring that to the court's attention when it does arise in a case. And
1: even if it's not a private account, If the child is in the home, how often do our kids grab our phone to go look for something? And, oh, they may end up on Facebook or whatever social media app just to look around. And there we see mom's post about what an A-hole dad is. And now it's certainly hard for us as attorneys to prove that or to really even know if it's happening. But I think the argument could certainly be made.
0: Of course, I can't tell you the amount of times I'm on a live on TikTok when my Children, my two and three-year-old, are supposed to be asleep and then they burst in the room and they're over here taking my phone while I'm trying to do a live. So it happens. So let's talk
1: specifically about divorce and social media use of the parties. What are some issues you see social media related in a divorce context?
0: Another category that I think kind of gets underestimated a little bit is the marketplace for Facebook. You know, those wonderful standing orders that say don't sell or dilute assets. And then, you know, people are posting their stuff to sell in the middle of a divorce case. <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah, that has came up a couple of times. But also, um, just generally discussing the litigation on social media. People love to vent on social media. They, that's their outlet. And I tell them it is well worth their money to go get a counselor to have a confidential outlet than a social one.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, we'll see um, in the divorce context, sometimes people will post, they'll they'll check in somewhere that maybe they shouldn't be. Or they'll um, tag somebody else that they shouldn't be with. And those things can be gold for us as attorneys, too.
0: Yes, especially from the adultery standpoint, they can't help it. People these days cannot help but post on social media. We had a pretty big case out in Collin County, and the husband was sending money through Facebook to various women. And it's clearly traceable. It goes through Facebook Messenger. So when we did discovery and obtained a copy of his Facebook account, There's the transactions for the payments, the messages. These women are even like commenting and loving and stuff on his profile pictures. And so then you start getting a trail ready to connect the dots, right? Because they're corresponding on Facebook, on other social media. We have bank account transfers to these women that we now know their names and we have a profile where we can go find them, And so adult, it comes in a lot when you're dealing with adultery claims and divorce as well, because I mean, like I said, people cannot help but just be on social media. I'm one of them. (laughs) So
1: you mentioned discovery. When you're dealing with discovery and trying to find the dirt, the social media dirt that's out there, what specific types of requests are you making that are really going to get you? the dirt.
0: So the Facebook download is like golden. A lot of times people will try to object to it, but I found, especially in divorce cases, the courts typically order the Facebook download because there's so much stuff that could be covered from the division of the marital estate, adultery, cold treatment, like, Typically, that is. I think it's a little harder to get a Facebook download unless you have some evidence for the court when you're dealing with something like a modification or um, non-married parties. But it's still possible if you can show that they are... It affects your litigation directly. It's not just a phishing expedition so much. And so Facebook is golden. You ask for the download. We include instructions in our request for production that literally tells them how to go download their Facebook. That way they can't claim they didn't know how to do it. It's super easy. And But we also include requests for various social media accounts, um, even ones that you don't typically think about. Um, LinkedIn, not very popular. We put it in there anyways. Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, things like dating websites, anything that is a possible social network, we put it in there and request it, especially in our divorce cases. So, you want to be specific sometimes and request for like the direct messages, the um, content that's posted. I see attorneys a lot of time request the passwords to social media. I've always objected to that. I've never provided a password to a client's social media account. I feel like that's an invasion of their privacy and you're not supposed to access their account, anyways, per most standing orders. But you want to be detailed because you don't want to get that overly broad objection, obviously. And so we usually break ours down into separate requests for each social media instead of just putting any and all social media And because people leave stuff out. (laughs) So if you, let's say you
1: request um, cheating husband's Facebook download and his direct messages, husband sees that and he's thinking, oh no, maybe I shouldn't have been direct messaging with these other women or I shouldn't have been sending them money. If he tries to delete those things, are they still going to show up in the download?
0: I think for the most part, for the, for the download part, they do show up. They may not show up on like on his inbox, but you have to do the download. And um, if there's instances where you have concerns about them deleting content, we always send a spoilation letter. And then it may be necessary to get a forensic expert involved to help recover those messages. Because even when people think it's deleted, usually our forensic expert can find it. And so it's just something to be weary of.
1: What type of expert do you hire to help you find those types of things? And how do, they, do you have any idea how they do it?
0: Do I know how they do it? No, but here is a plug for Grace Rubio and Rubio Forensics. That's who we use a lot. She's amazing um, at recovering deleted content and um, even like for phones that are broken sometimes and they say they can't use it. There's a way to restore or to recover the data from it. And so, no, I have no clue how she does it, but she's with her weight in gold. It's amazing. (laughs) So when
1: you bring in an expert like that, does the other side have to provide a password in that situation?
0: I've not had them had to require a password yet. I'm not exactly sure of the answer, if that's the case in all instances, but typically there's a way for her to access it from the uh, hardware in the phone. So I haven't had to give her a password for, we've used her several times, but that's a really good question.
1: Interesting. Okay. So one of the issues that we see come up in custody cases or a divorce that involves kids relates to parents' differing opinions on social media used by kids in monitoring it between homes. What do you see in the social media context and custody cases like that.
0: I just had a case about this. The children that my client was a father to were younger. They were preteens. And the step sister had been on social media, not step, half sister, had been on social media for a while since she was 14 or 13. She's 17 now. And she had over a million followers across platforms from TikTok, Instagram and YouTube. And that that's good for her if her mom and dad agree for that. The problem was my client's young children are being on lives, checked in, used for promotional ads and stuff associated with their sister on public profiles and sometimes the content was not appropriate for their age. It had curse words kind of inappropriate clothing by older kids. It's just not appropriate for their age when they were like 9 and 12. And so that was a really big deal because the parents disagreed on the social media content. And um, we had very specific language drafted about neither parent can assume the identity of the children to post as their account Because you know, typically these social media accounts require you to be 13 years or older and these kids were not of that age, but they had social media accounts that were managed by the other parent. And so I don't necessarily think it's bad for kids to have social media accounts. I think it becomes a problem when you and your co-parent aren't on the same page. And if you're not being respectful of your co-parent's thoughts on it, you're going to end up in litigation about it. And I think it's so new and... It's kind of scary not knowing about it. So things that they're very real concerns, checking in. Okay, now you have, you know, 100,000, 200,000 people know where you're at. Okay, you're supporting this brand or you're getting paid to support this brand. But is that really what you want your child at that age to be associated with? And so in my case, we were able to show that a lot of the content that was being posted was not age appropriate, and the court agreed with us and restricted mom's ability to post that type of content. In fact, they're not allowed to be on public profiles until they're a certain age. If either one of them have an account, both parents have to have the username, password, parental controls for the devices that they're on, and very strict rules for when you create an account, what can what type of content you can post? And so I'm I'm sure they'll be back in court because it'll be that, an issue. It's really in
1: interesting because you kind of have constitutional issues tied around to the parents' rights to be on social media and to what extent can courts knock that down or limit it. So it's there's probably going to be a lot of new issues coming up as courts and attorneys and parents try to navigate these issues with kids
0: it's it is there's gonna you're gonna see it a lot more in court because despite what the parents think most kids not all kids think it's cool to have a ton of followers think you know what I mean they like that attention and so you get into this kind of back and forth of, well, we can't do that because the other parent doesn't want us to. And so then you're creating a conflict with the child too. And I think a lot of that varies with the child's age and maturity level. So it's definitely, I think people are going to see it a lot more in court.
1: So when when you're actually using social media posts in court, can you tell us how you go about laying the predicate to get that in?
0: Of course. So um, if you don't already have the predicates manual, it's amazing. You should have it. (laughs) Especially if you're a new lawyer or if you're a lawyer that's not familiar with this type of social media, it really does a good job of teaching you the predicate. But you always want to identify, is this your account? Did you create this account? Are you the person who posts content to this account? And then when you go to get to a specific post, did you post this on or about this date, I usually throw in a question about does anyone else have access to your account that would change or alter or post something without your permission? Um, If the answer is yes, I would also follow up, well, are you aware they posted this? Who posted this? Just to get it authenticated. You run into some issues with things like Instagram and Snapchat because You know, one of your basic predicate questions is, has this photograph been altered? And a lot of times it has. (laughs) You have filters. You can have bunny ears or be a cat or (laughs) whatever. But you just go through it and say, like, was this filter added? Does it substantially change the content as it's depicted? Other than the fact you have bunny ears, is this you? (laughs) And to get it in that way, I think it gets a little more difficult when you're getting into Instagram Reels or TikTok videos because you get issues with hearsay sometimes in the videos because a popular trend right now is to green screen or meaning having something play in the background that may be text messages, direct messages, a different video that the person filming may not be able to authenticate. It may have messages between other people that are hearsay. And so I haven't had it come up into court yet, but it's something I think about. Um, And I think the way to kind of get around it is to say that, you know, the video is not offered for the truth of the matter asserted in those background photographs. It's offered for whoever's the subject, their content, not necessarily what's behind them.
1: So you were talking a little bit ago about social media accounts of children. How, if you're able to, do you get in social media accounts from children when they're not there as a witness to authenticate it?
0: Yeah, so that, you get into a little bit, I think the courts have given some leeway if the parent can testify that this is the child's social media account, you know them to use this account, especially if they supervise the account. And if they were present when the picture was posted, because remember, you don't have to be the person who posted or takes the picture, but if they were there when the picture was taken, then they can authenticate as to what was going on as well.
1: So I was thinking how you were talking earlier about you know, inappropriate content appearing on kids' social media. And I'm thinking, do we have hearsay issues? Do we <laughs> Did the court give you a hard time about presenting? Here are the pictures we found. I guess that maybe is more of a... website authentication, essentially, if you go on the website and you see this posted under this account and you haven't altered it, is that how you get it in?
0: That's what we did in our other social media account, that this is a public profile. This is the profile they know that they use. This is the content. They're aware of the content and go from there. Um, I think a bigger issue also is content that maybe your child posts without your permission and then you have them take it down. Because then you're like, they posted it, I didn't approve of it, it took it down, but you run into some of those authentication problems then because you weren't aware of what was going on at the time. Yeah, I've I've had courts give leeway on that and they still admit it.
1: Okay, so if you could give one piece of advice to family lawyers when it comes to dealing with social media in cases, what would it be?
0: Know what it is, guys. You got to know what it is <laughs> and know how it works. And that's actually one of the reasons why I got that case was because the current lawyer didn't really understand the monetization of the accounts, how they are shared, the effects of tagging people and how that spreads the viewers of it. So you need to understand, especially if it's a specific type of social media, if you don't know, find someone who does. Pretty much any teenager can explain to you better than I can how it works. And you have to have a graphs to be able to eloquently explain that to the court in terms that other people understand like you need to know what a hashtag does if your page is public that hashtag is going to expose your page to more people who are either following that hashtag look at that hashtag or it's in line with what their algorithm produces for their content and so maybe I should slow down a little bit algorithm (laughs) no you're on (laughs) a So for, for social media, guys, it tailors to your interest. So what you see like on your Instagram Explore page, on your targeted Facebook ads, on your TikTok for you page, that's more content you interact with. It pushes more videos for you to view that are associated with that content. That's what the algorithm does. And so you have to realize that if you're using that content or your children are using that content, it's going to push those videos out if they're public or those pictures to people who are viewing that type of content. And so it's just something to be aware of how quickly a video or a photo can go viral overnight. And you know, you may think, oh, I don't have a lot of followers, but it just happens. Something about that made it push out to a lot of people. So it's yeah, just I think something my to be advice aware of
1: might be if you're if you run a law firm or you're a solo attorney, you may need to hire a young person. So, they can explain it to you. I knew my children would be good for something.
0: Yes, you can get them right on the payroll and put them to work. And <laughs> they're really good at finding social media accounts because, you know, people don't always just use their name. And so, I found that younger people are really good at finding accounts that may be under a different username or something that's not a big red flag, like, hey, this is the party. They're really good at finding those accounts. <laughs>
1: All right. So switching gears a little bit to our other topic of discussion, which would be how attorneys can use social media in their to build up their practice or um, marketing, things of that nature. And I know you're really active on social media, um, being on TikTok I only have TikTok to try and see what my kid wants to do, but uh, <laughs> I know I need, you know, I need to get with the times. So, what social media platforms do you use, and do you find most effective in terms of building your brand, building your practice?
0: So, TikTok has been really popular for me, probably because I put more effort into it. I'm starting to use my Instagram and my Facebook and stuff more, but those had historically been more for personal entertainment uses. And then enters TikTok into my life, (laughs) which just started out as like, I'm bored, I'm gonna play on here. My niece, who was 16 at the time when COVID first started, showed me, I was like, oh, this is cute. And then I saw there's lawyers on TikTok. And I was like, oh, I can do that. And so I just started making lawyer content. It was nothing big for about a year. And then my account started growing overnight. And I noticed the more lawyer content I made, the more popular my videos were. And I started getting more followers. And so I don't always, I usually don't share my TikTok videos on Facebook or Instagram. Just because if you're not on TikTok, you may not understand the trend or like why it's funny. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it started out as fun. And then I started getting clients. I started getting people referring me because they saw my TikTok. I um, have probably gotten six clients in the last month, month and a half that are solely from TikTok. They saw my videos, they liked my personality, and they they decided to call and schedule a consultation. I think you have to be aware as a lawyer that you make it very clear you are not their lawyer because you don't want to inadvertently create that attorney-client relationship. So... Whenever I do lawyer content, I always make sure to put this is not legal advice. I am a lawyer, not your lawyer. This applies to Texas cases and is for informational purposes only just to kind of cover my bases. And then whenever I get direct messages asking for advice, I let them know that it's not fair to give uh, advice on TikTok. It requires more of a conversation. And we also need to run conflicts checks. And I just send them the website so they can go schedule a consultation if they want to.
1: So when you're posting lawyer content on TikTok, how long are your videos usually?
0: <laughs> Normally, they're anywhere from like 15 seconds to 60 seconds. Uh, TikTok recently upped the time limit to three minutes. But um, from these the um, data that they collect from TikTok, most people don't watch that long. So I try to keep them anywhere between 15 seconds to about 60 seconds. That's
1: really interesting because... I mean, I've really been successful at marketing through Facebook over the years, but I've never did... I I think I've made one TikTok video ever. And it was because my (laughs) kid's assignment was to do a TikTok or something. But um, I'll have to go check yours out because 15 to 60 seconds of content is not much. So it's very interesting that those short snippets of content are enough to build a following and to have people taking that next step of... Making consults and hiring
0: you—it's—it's it's crazy. I mean, I have some videos that have like half a million views. I have about twenty-six thousand followers right now, but that's—it's minimal compared to some of the other bigger creators. I actually went to a conference in Vegas with lawyers from TikTok, and there are verified creators. That means they have the little blue check mark by their name. <laughs> And they have half a million followers, three quarters of a million followers. I think there's one um, that has like a million followers. And it's just crazy to see how they went from most of them, young lawyers to, you know, partners in their firm, or they're getting to go out on their own because they're creating and originating enough cases from social media, just because people like their personality.
1: So how does a person get to be verified? Do you have a blue check mark or a green check? I do not
0: have a blue check mark. No, I think it's something you have to go through uh, the TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, uh, and they verify like people who are professional athletes or actors or whatever. Obviously, they can be easily verified, but for the content creators, I think they got invited by TikTok to like do some extra work, and then they got verified. At least that's the ones that I know that are verified. I'm not there, Holly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're way ahead of me. So for any other, you know, more uh older lawyers such as myself who maybe don't know how to use TikTok, aren't familiar with what to do with it, do you rec are there any specific resources you recommend checking out? Or do you just get a TikTok account and start watching?
0: Just get a TikTok account and start watching. There, it's really user-friendly. It's easy to do. And you know, typically if you look, they have things that are like TikTok viral. So viral sounds that are super popular. They'll push your video out a little more and um, just play around with it. It's not like you need a class on it. You can probably find, you know, a teenager show you how to do it and you'll be good to go.
1: <laughs> well, so for anyone who wants to go become one of your followers or just check out your account, what is, how do we find you on TikTok.
0: I always get nervous with this because my content on TikTok is very different from my personal content. Sometimes there's curse words. Sometimes the videos are a little ironic. So I'm like, oh, gosh. And I have some of the judges found my actual TikTok account and they follow me and I forget sometimes. And I'm like, oh, hi, judge. And <laughs> Yeah, but it's just my name on TikTok. It's Kayla Aravallo. Instagram, it's Kayla Aravallo eleven. Facebook, Kayla Aravallo. Just my name.
1: And that's your personal or your uh, lawyer stuff on TikTok, as opposed to your personal stuff.
0: Yeah, I don't have a personal TikTok. It's just it's just my account. There's mostly lawyer stuff, sometimes travel stuff, or like my kids and family, and um, yeah, my husband has been super <laughs> understanding because I. I know it has to be annoying with the amount of stuff I post. So, love you Jose.
1: (laughs) Well, it does sound like it is definitely working to, especially for an attorney who hasn't been licensed that long, to be able to be generating that type of new client base is awesome. I think uh, more attorneys will probably start to follow that, but it could take a while to catch on.
0: Yeah, I understand that. But, you know, y'all are welcome when y'all are ready. Just let me know. I'll come follow you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll put that on my uh, business development to-do list. (laughs) Okay, so are there any other, other than TikTok, do you find any of the other social media platforms to be useful in growing your practice?
0: Of course. So we have started um, doing very structured posts on Facebook and we've gotten a lot of engagement from that as well. Monica has been awesome about making sure we have the right people in place to do our Instagram and our Facebook. And so we've also seen a lot more attention and interaction from people, the public or whatever, from those uh, social media accounts as well. And so that's always fun. We share posts from the page and, um, It just kind of gets it out there as well that we have a specific person to handle that type of stuff.
1: All right. So if you, again, had one piece of advice for family lawyers about how to best use social media to grow their brand and their practice, what would it be?
0: Just to be authentic and be yourself. I think a lot of times people get caught up in having a persona of a lawyer. We're supposed to be serious and we're supposed to be very professional at all times, but you can still be professional and still be fun and have a little bit of a personality. And I think that really translates to your audience when you're on social media. If you're genuine and they can get a feel for your personality, they're going to know better than just what some reviews say. Because you can be an excellent lawyer, but your personality may not click with a certain client. And they kind of get a feel for that before um, coming into your office. Yeah, I think that
1: that's great advice, and I think a lot of people there's a certain level of comfort that people get from feeling like they know you, even though they don't know you. Yes, and
0: yeah.
1: I know video is kind of the future. It's probably not really the future anymore. It's kind of the now for marketing, <laughs> which is some of us don't really like to be on video as much. We have to get over that, but um, it's definitely where things are going. So I think you're that you're ahead of the game.
0: Thank you. All right. So we're just
1: about out of time, but other than the social media profiles that you shared, where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you?
0: The cruise dot That's our firm page. We have a bio on there so you can read more about um, all of our staff members, not just me. And uh, if you needed to schedule a consultation or whatever else, you could also do it on there. I do have a LinkedIn not very active on it, but you can see my professional credentials there. (laughs) (laughs) I have a LinkedIn that
1: I'm not active on either. And I bet it's my professional credentials from a good 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) I need you to update that Holly. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that needs to go on my uh, business development list too. But anyway, um, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing with us two different facets of social media that we can all use going forward as family lawyers. Uh, For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes.
0: Absolutely, guys. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast
1: is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.